Hey everyone, this is Joe Heiler from SportsRehabExpert.com, and today I'm on the phone with Angela Gordon, who's a physical therapist, athletic trainer, a certified orthopedic manual therapist, and also an orthopedic certified specialist with more than 12 years of clinical experience in orthopedic and sports physical therapy. Uh, she's been the lead physical therapist for the Washington Nationals baseball team in 2005, and now from 2010 uh, up through today. Uh, she's also worked extensively with uh, numerous other elite athletes, Major League Baseball, Canadian Football League, uh, European basketball players, as well as working closely with a lot of high school and collegiate uh, athletes as well. So I wanted to get her on the, the phone today and, and talk a lot about uh, overhead athletes and shoulders, and uh, so that's some of the things we're going to hit on. So, Angela, it's great to have you on here. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you being you letting me uh, come on the phone with you today. Yeah, it's great to have you on first time. So we'll, and then of course, like I told you, I started looking you up and doing a little research, and I probably could come up with a whole bunch of other stuff I want to ask you about too. But we'll maybe save that for interview number two someday. <laughs> but <laughs> Sounds good. Why don't Why don't we start out with uh, just have you tell us a bit more about yourself and your background, and uh, you know, I guess how you end up uh, coming to work with the Nationals. So, like you said, my name is Angela Gordon. Um, part of my background. I have had the um, pleasure and the um, blessing of being able to go through the NIOMP program, which is the North American Institute of Manual Therapy. In conjunction with that program, I also completed my doctorate with Doctorate of Science with Andrews University, which the combination program was pretty much a game changer for me in terms of my career and the way that I treat. Um, I am a certified athletic trainer. I have my board certified orthopedic certification. Um, I'm FMS certified, SFMA certified. Um, all those certifications I've just kind of done along the way, you know, throughout my career. Um, but earlier, earlier in my career, about 10 years ago in 2005, I had the, you know, great blessing of being able to um, get involved with working with the Nationals, and I credit a lot of my ability to do that through our medical director, Dr. DeLoghi, who um, saw some faith in me and asked me to work with, um, you know, the professional baseball team. And I, at that point, had no idea about anything in baseball. Most of my training, as you saw, and the stuff that I'd done previous to that was female athlete-driven. So I pretty much started working with professional athletes um, in 2005. And then uh, the team got sold, and they got a new ownership. Um, they had a different medical staff in there, and then in 2010, Dr. DeLoghi asked me to come back to the team, and I did, and I've been there ever since. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your background, too, because one of the things that we haven't had a whole lot on the site before are clinicians that have been through the, the NIOMP program, and you said that was pretty much a game changer for you. Um, there are tons of people on here that use FM, or, I'm sorry, FMS, SFMA, so you know, we'll we'll kind of maybe bring that into discussion, but I'd like to have you talk a little bit about, about your other training and how, like you said, that's really been a game changer for you. So uh, when I was in physical therapy school, I had a professor who was Stanley Parrish trained, and I learned a lot of the biomechanical ERS, FRS, neutral dysfunctions, all that biomechanical evaluation through uh, that system. And... You know, I, I felt like I was a very successful therapist through that system, but I always felt like I needed something more. You know, I, I just wasn't getting the quick res response and results that I really wanted. So 
so I started searching. I did a bunch of courses. I did, you know, Maitland. I took a couple other random courses throughout my early years. And then I landed upon the NIOP program through Andrews University. And I did my master's through Andrews University. So I was pretty partial to doing my doctorate with them as well. Um, and then when I started the NIOP program, it really came to light, you know, how much, even though I was five years out of school at that point, how much I still didn't know. Uh, and NIOMP has a very structured program and a very difficult program that you go through um, four different levels of coursework, examinations after every level, oral practicals, case study um, papers that they want you to write and grade. Um, and it just really made my clinical skills very more narrowed and specific. And they were very biomechanical and in the eclectic approach. It wasn't just one one approach. It just wasn't like a Paris approach or a muscle energy approach. It was it brought in a lot of stuff. And the professors that we worked with and the clinicians that we worked with going through that program had 30 years of experience. So I was very fortunate enough to work under some of those um, experienced clinicians and really refine my clinical skills. Well, one of the things I wanted to have you talk about a bit was just, just I guess, in general first, talk about your approach to evaluating athletes. And again, you know, we hopefully a lot of people on here have a little bit of an SFMA background, which will help, but um, we'll try to incorporate maybe some of the other things you do too. But let's talk generally about just your approach to evaluating an athlete, and then maybe we'll get to talk a little more specifically about baseball players. Um, well, first, when I look at a, at a professional athlete, you know, when I work with the team, it's a very different environment than working in the clinic. You know, being in the I'm – I'm there on a part-time basis with the team, so I'm not there 100% of the time. Um, so when I'm there, I have a bunch of guys that always want, you know, some treatment and stuff. And so my treatment approach has to be very quick. And fortunate enough, I've been there long enough, so a lot of these guys I know. But, you know, first-time guy that I've never treated before, I've, I've got to go through a basic screen, um, a scan. And, you know, I've taken – bits and pieces through SFMA and the, the scanning process that NIOP has taught me um, and basically just go through that and try and identify somewhere in the link, you know, whether it's upper extremity or lower extremity, where it might be pointing me to. And then I get into a more biomechanical joint-specific approach. Um, you know, I follow the serous flexive tissue tensioning principles, you know, evaluating appropriate um, ligaments and tendons and, and making sure that I'm doing the right treatment techniques based on the tissue response level. Um, the SFMA has been, has been a great adjunct for me to go through an overall screen of them. In the, in the professional setting, it's difficult to do a lot of breakouts with them because I just don't have time. You know, we got 15, 20 minutes to work on a guy, make him feel better and get him on the field, get him ready for batting practice or whatever it needs to be that day. Um, but when I'm in the clinic, it gives me a little bit more time to evaluate the other athletes and, you know, I can get an hour and I can go through some breakout sessions, get down to my joint-specific exam, figure out is it a mobility issue, is it a stability issue, is the, you know, is there functional instability on the joint, is it a um, arthrokinematic issue on the joint. Um, so those are the kind of things that I look at and going through the NIOP scan, combining it with SFMA is great for me because it really helps me to narrow things down to be very specific and very quick. Mm -hmm. What I'm just wondering, too, because I know there's, there's so many places that now that the SFMA has flow sheets, I think I took it a million years ago when there was there were no flow sheets and there weren't breakouts for half of the different things we did. But um, 
a lot of the breakouts get to a point where it says, okay, now go basically do your standard PT biomechanical evaluation of the hip or of the shoulder. I'm assuming that's a place where like your NIOP training just comes in big time at that point, right? Right, exactly. Well, and then could you also talk maybe a couple things that, you always know, like to kind of to do this, things that maybe, you know, years ago, you said that first five years that maybe you didn't, you know, you didn't see or didn't realize that maybe there's that link between, you know, I mean, the T-spine and the shoulder might be an example or something like that, but um, it doesn't have to be shoulder-related. But, you know, some of the things that you see with your baseball players, maybe things you wouldn't have picked up on years ago, but now, you know, that people may not think, but, yeah, there's definitely a link here. Right. Well, you know, we all talk about looking at the kinetic chain and, you know, the low extremity link, and um, but I really don't feel like until I I got through most of my level threes through NIOP that it really, I finally understood it. Um, and I was always kind of trying to figure that out because, it, you know, I could tell that there was a link somewhere else in the body. I just never could figure out how to get there. And um, Earl Petman, who was one of our senior faculty at NIOP, you know, his level three has this great lecture on the foot bones connected to the knee bones, connected to the hip bone. And he basically goes through gait and just the link on how every single joint from the foot to the hip is linked and why biomechanical errors happen. And if you've got a lack of hip extension, you've got to look at, you know, foot dorsiflexion. And it just made sense to me on how to get to that link and how to, how to narrow that process down. And the information that I was taught really, really was a game changer in terms of treatment and how fast, I was just shocked at how fast I was able to improve um, some of these guys' injuries by just simple, you know, manipulative techniques or looking at one, one aspect of one joint and how that relates and how it changes another joint so rapidly. Um, so for low extremity, that was, that was my, my biggest kind of aha moment after I finished that NIOP class. Um, for the upper extremity, since I've been treating shoulder, shoulder so much, um, I've been, you know, we've all had that, you know, athlete that hyperextends the lumbar spine to try and stabilize scapula. Um, some, of the, some athletes regain scapular stability really quickly. Some athletes don't. And there's always that why. Well, why, did, why does some do well and why, does, why some don't? So I started playing around with the diaphragm and looking at your inner core stabilization and kind of starting to dabble a little bit into the DNS system now and really seeing a huge difference in how fast developing that inner core stabilization and normalizing diaphragmic motion and breathing can can really help stabilize that scapula even quicker than I've ever realized. That's cool. So, so you've even taken some of the DNS stuff then too, huh? Right. Okay. I've yeah, just started cool. the DNS stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, it's just nice how you seem to, I mean, I, I you know, try to do the same thing. I mean, I hate to just, like, pick bits and pieces, but sometimes it's like you're going through a course and you're like, wow, that fits so perfectly with what I already do with this. And then it's just nice to be able to incorporate those things and they just fit seamlessly. Right. And I'm I'm kind of one of those anal retentive people that once I learn something, I get at it, I, I'm ready to do more. Like, I want I want the next step. I want the next piece to add into my, my treatment approach and my rehab approach. So for me, I've, you know, I've always been a huge um, believer in Vlandimir Yonda, and the DNF stuff just makes sense to me. So that's kind of my next adventure. Oh, that's cool. Okay. No, I'm the same way. You get it one thing, time to go learn something else. So. Right. Um, 
Well, and then let's talk a little bit about, I just wanted to ask you too, like kind of what some of your go-to treatments might be for, you know, say if you're, you're going through the SFMA and you find, you know, you're doing a breakout and you find a, uh, you know, let's say a mobility dysfunction and you do your biomechanical assessments and now you find, okay, I've got joint mobility or maybe it's soft tissue. You know, what are some of the go-to types of approaches that you use for addressing those, those dysfunctions? Well, I have, um, you know, I do some of the ASIM stuff the tools, the soft tissue tools, um, but my, my main go-to is trigger point dry needling. Um, so the way that I pretty much approach, you know, for instance, the hip, and we have a lot of guys in, in the baseball community that end up with back pain and spasms throughout the season, and, it, you know, it's a very high rotational support, um, sport in general, so we, we got to look at, you know, those core static stabilizer stuff. So... I've had some pretty good results with them in terms of dry needling the um, inner hip muscles, the piriformis, the obturators, the gemellis, <clears throat> getting really down into those, those core static stabilizers of the hip, dry needling them, and then adding a stabilization program onto them. And that really seems to help loosen up their hips and give them a little more stability um, and help them stay a little bit healthier throughout the season. So um, dry needling is always, if they can handle it and if they're willing to do it. It's always one of my first go-to soft tissue um, techniques if it's indicated in the, in the you know, the, given the situation. Um, but I've done ASIM, I've done strain counter strain, I've done just myofascial release. Um, and so, you know, every once in a while I pull out a different technique here and there depending on who it is, what works for them, um, and what they're amenable to doing. Okay. Well, and one of the questions I want to ask you, too, um, kind of like before, you know, maybe what are a couple places now that you might look um, now that you have more, you know, manual therapy tools available to you and you're looking functionally at how they move and, and all that, but maybe some places that you might look now that you didn't look again, you know, 10 years ago. And you did give a great lower extremity example, maybe uh, uh, maybe an upper extremity example this time. Um, well, you talk about for the upper extremity, you've got to you've got to incorporate regional interdependence for the upper extremity, especially the scapula. I mean, the scapula to me is one of the most dynamic things you can look at, and no matter if it's a shoulder, elbow, neck, you you have to incorporate some type of scapula stabilization. That is like your core of your shoulder, um, and then you know addressing cervical dysfunction in terms of the shoulder was. Um, again, a game changer for me that I learned through the NIOP and um, screening through the cervical spine is an absolutely must now for me. That is something that I don't um, don't bypass or don't, you know, if I have a little bit of time, that's the first thing that I'm going to go to to eliminate any cervical dysfunction at all because every single muscle on the scapula is innervated by the cervical spine. So if the scapula can't, you can't stabilize the scapula unless you've got a, unless you normalize the cervical spine. Okay. Well, and that's, okay. So, yeah, that gets me thinking of a couple other things I want to ask you. Um, <laughs> well, and it, it makes sense. I mean, I, I just started thinking, okay, you're talking about, you know, cervical spine, and I think of the SFMA hierarchy, and that's one of the huge reasons the cervical spine is number one. Shoulders are number two. You know, T-spine kind of fits in there with those things mm -hmm. as well. So it sounds like, you know, your NIOM training and, again, and coming back to SFMA are both telling you the same thing. Right. And then also the other thing that I was just thinking about, too, from a mobility versus stability approach, um, 
you know, kind of how do you feel about that whole thing? I mean, I know a lot of people say, and I guess I kind of, you know, I tend to go more along this line too, is I feel like I've got to restore mobility where it's needed before I can try to, you know, bring on some motor control in that area. I agree. I agree a lot. You know, when I look at, when I screen through any baseball player, I find that they are either on either end of the extreme. Either you've got a very lax, hypermobile athlete, or you've got a very stiff athlete, especially in men. Um, and so, you know, I always, when I teach, I always caution people to, first thing you got to look at, what is the overall physique of the, of the patient of the athlete? And that's going to determine your treatment approach from a mobility or stability standpoint. Because if I've got somebody that's inflexible and not moving well, I'm going to focus a lot on corrective and mobility stuff and restoring normal biomechanical mobility in that athlete before you can jump on to doing all these fun, fancy exercises. Because if they don't have the mobility, they're not going to progress with any of their strength training and, and enhancement exercises. And the same thing goes for a stability or for um, a um, lax athlete, a hypermobile athlete. they got to focus on stability, and that's got to be their focus. That's got to be their prevention um, as the season goes on because those hypermobilities can quickly turn into pain and ligamentous stress issues and tendon issues if they don't focus on keeping that st- core stability and shoulder stability or whatever it might be for them. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how I have to approach it. I can't have a standardized toolbox for everybody because some of these guys, even though it's the same sport and you see the same rotational dysfunctions, uh, the body type plays a big role for me and where I need to start and what I need to address. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Well, and one of the other things I want to ask you about, because you may talk a bit about your relationship with, like, the strength and conditioning staff with the Nationals and maybe kind of how things work in your environment. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that first, but then I wanted to get into maybe some of the injury prevention strategies that you might help to implement with those programs as well. Um, sure. These, so, you know, given I'm not there on a full-time basis, I've got to rely heavily on our athletic trainers and the strength and conditioning guys to help follow through with whatever you know, prevention programs or whatever treatment programs we have in place. Um, and our strength guys have been, you know, I work really well with them. They do a wonderful job. Um, we've incorporated a lot of injury prevention pro- protocols in into the workout systems over the years. And um, I'm, you know, very thankful for their follow-through because we just, you know, what we've discovered that works out the best is if we just sneak things in during the guy's normal workouts, um, they're less likely to fight it and then not realizing that they're actually doing it. And I rely on those guys to to follow through with that. And then they give me feedback too, you know, if, if a guy starts a program and it gets too easy or if a guy does something and it's not working for him or if it gets to be too much and they're too sore, um, you know, they're constantly giving me feedback to adjust and help come up with new ideas to address certain issues um, along the way. Well, what are, so, so kind of working in those injury prevention things into their workouts, you know, maybe between sets they're doing, some of their correctives, or you incorporate them into their warm-ups, is that, you know, things like that? Right. A lot of them like to call it activation. So okay. we add activation exercises, if you will, <laughs> depending, you know, and I – pretty much tell them I don't really care what you call it as long as you do it. It doesn't matter to me. 
Um, so over the years, it's been it's been a challenge to you know trial and error, coming up with what works, what doesn't work, and some of the things that I've discovered over the years working with these guys is that you know these these activation or correctives need to be um, need to be effective. They need to be able to feel results immediately from them in order for them to, to carry through and do them. Um, they can't be too complicated, and they can't take up a lot of time. Uh, you know, those guys are there 10 hours a day, all the different warm-ups and lifting and routines and, and prep work and batting practice they got to do. You know, it's got to be something that's going to target, be effective, and target what they need it to target and, and be quick for them to get through it and not take up a lot of time for them. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, what may be a couple other things? I'm just thinking, again, along the prevention lines again, and maybe just some general health types of things that you might recommend to your athletes. Um, you know, things, again, you know, warming up or things maybe they do after the game or things that maybe they need to do at home to stay healthy, avoid, you know, some of these injuries or a lot of these, you know, really common things that we see nowadays. Um, well, a lot of things, you know, for our pitchers, we all talk about, you know, making sure that they do the proper arm arm care routine. And a lot of these guys at this level, you know, it doesn't take much convincing to have them do what they need to do in, in terms of arm care. Um, and they all have a pretty much set routine that they do. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to come in and change somebody's routine because baseball guys are very superstitious. So, you know, you can't change yeah. anything unless – unless they really want it to be changed. So, um, But over the years of, of being there and being around baseball, you know, we tweak things here and there. We change things. We Over the course of the season, we have to take out things or subtract stuff. Um, they, yeah, oh, go ahead. I mean, it's hard from my perspective, really. I mean, I'm not I'm not there daily, so I think our, our strength and conditioning guys and our athletic trainers handle a lot of those general health topics for them. Um, mm-hmm. on that professional level, so yeah, it's, a, it's funny what you said about it. How they're very uh, superstitious, and I, I don't run into, I don't get to train a lot of, you know, guys. Rarely get to train guys at that level. I tend to get minor league guys and things like that, but they're still doing programs a lot of times. That was what I did back in high school, or I did this in Double A. Um, you know, some old kind of theraband program or some, you know, yeah. like stuff that's like a, a hundred years old and uh it's like hard to get them it's hard to get them or to convince them sometimes like hey there's a better way so i'm sure the more you get to work with them and you guys have some successes they probably buy into some of the i don't want to say like you know the, the old stuff's all bad the new stuff's all good i mean because there's good and bad from both but right. i'm sure they kind of buy into some of the more of the you know the functional approach that you're doing yeah, and it's taken, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes, it took a few years for guys to really kind of trust and, and do the stuff and, you know, somebody gets injured and that's my chance to kind of maybe start correcting a little bit of things along the way and, and changing programs around and, you know, the scapula program that I use, a lot of the guys do that now and they, it's very difficult and, you know, it doesn't, some of them can't even do it with weights. And, you know, once they see the benefits of doing something, um, then they tend to stick with it, and then they tell somebody else, and then somebody else tells somebody else. So, you know, it's just it takes a little bit of persistence. It takes a little bit of patience, and it takes, you know, a little bit of time to 
um, get guys to kind of see the benefits of doing certain correctives and certain exercises in a different light than what they're used to doing. But, um, you know, a lot of guys, if they get hurt, most of them are like, I'll do whatever it takes. You just tell me what I need to do. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that gets gets to be a little bit easier on my end to be able to get them, you know, seeing some of the benefits of doing, you know, more functional-based stuff and more exercise stuff geared towards their sport and how the muscles and uh, their body needs to function over a period of the season. Okay. Well, and one of the other things I wanted to ask you too, because this, I, I figure I probably just I ask this of all the people I talk to that work in college and pro sports, because I mean, a lot of clinicians, I remember when I was younger too, always wanted to work in pro sports or work with college athletics. And, you know, now I'm kind of, I'm going to say I'm glad I don't, but I'm kind of happy where I am. But at the same time, I mean, that's that's always kind of one of those things you're thinking about coming up, and people are always asking, hey, how do you get involved in this? Or, so I guess I'd just like to ask, you know, what are some maybe some things that people or, you know, clinicians coming through school or who are, you know, who are new in the field and they're looking to get involved with college or pro sports? What might be some recommendations you have? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's something that I get asked all the time as well. You know, I, I kind of have an atypical story. It wasn't anything that I thought out looking for. It kind of, I've been blessed enough that it just fell in my lap and our medical director just had a lot of faith in me treating his patients over the years. And um, I've learned and grew, you know, over over time with the sport. And, um, you know, especially a lot of people ask me that question because I'm a woman working in baseball, which is very, very few happening there. So I'm very fortunate to be where I'm at and, um a lot of young, you know, clinicians, the first thing I tell them, it's like, you know, working in pro sports is, is fun, it's stressful, um, it's great. You know, I learn a lot from, from them just as much as they learn from me. But I just don't treat shoulder. I just don't treat elbow. I treat everything from the ankle to the the head. And what makes me successful, I think, is being able to be a well-rounded clinician and have mastered my, my clinical reasoning and my my orthopedic manual skills um, because you've got to be on top of, of everything. You've got to know how to treat everything to be able to be successful because, you know, baseball specifically, there's injuries that happen in, in all parts of their bodies. So um, it, I know a lot of people think that, you know, you got to be well-versed in the shoulder and the elbow, which is very true, but you know, for young young people trying to get into athletics and sports and professional sports, I tell them, you know, the first thing you got to do is is make yourself a better clinician, master your skills, be well rounded, um, and that'll give you that'll take you a long way when when it comes to working with athletes because some of these athletes are very smart. You know, if you're not confident and if you don't know your stuff, they'll find out right away, and they and then you you don't really earn anybody's trust. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Well, and you're doing some teaching now for NIOP, I saw as well. Um, maybe just tell us a little bit about just some of the courses you're going to be teaching coming up and you know, maybe people can find out more information about, about you and what you're going to be doing. Yeah, so I'm very grateful and very excited that next year I'm going to be offering um, a specialty course for NIOP, and it's going to be the Overhead Athlete. Um, it's going to be a two-day course with a one-day prep work, you know, um, literature review stuff that will be done on own on, you know, the clinicians by themselves. Um, we're going to offer in a couple of different spots across the country. We're going to do Boston, Colorado, and then D.C. Um, we are currently working on the dates right now for that, but that should be up on the website soon. So people can just 
check back periodically to look for when that course information gets um, up on the website and start signing up for that. Um, I'm also going to be teaching a one-day shoulder course. It's um, current evidence in sports medicine update on the shoulder for uh, Lebanon Valley College up in Pennsylvania, and that's going to be in November. And that information should be distributed soon as well. Um, and then uh, I'm probably not going to be listed in some of the co-teaching stuff that I'll be doing for now, but some of their core courses or upper extremity classes, I might be co-teaching on some of them throughout the year as well. Okay. Cool. Well, and like I said, I mean, hopefully um, there's some good information there, and I know there's a lot more stuff I could be throwing at you, and I know there's a lot more things that you do as well, and some of them I was reading through, and, you know, with, um, you know, you work with a lot of female athletes and ACL prevention programs and things like that, but definitely more I'd like to talk to you about some other time. So hopefully we'll get you back on here sometime, but for now, right. I mean, thanks a bunch for coming on and, and talking about what you do with the Nationals. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, Joe.